hello everybody and welcome to yet another one in our series of financial well-being podcasts. Unbelievably, this is the 95th of these that we've done. Each one has been massively enjoyable in a totally different way. Each one of them has been shared with one of the two people that I'm about to introduce and most of them with the other. So let's go to the one that's done all 95 along with me. Oh, actually, that's not true because you guys did one without me once. So I'm the one that hasn't done all of them. But anyway, the one that has done all of them is Chris Bird. Say hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. Boom, boom. Uh, I'm feeling philosophical this morning, David. Why is that, Chris? Well, as you know, my I work from a little cabin in my garden and I'm back onto a big field, part of the network of fields that you know back onto. And the people that own this field, some friends of ours, uh, are rewilding the field. They're letting it just do what it wants to do, which is cool. And there's loads of brambles, and loads of brambles has resulted in loads of little birds that live in the brambles. And they are now coming and feeding at my bird feeder, which is fantastic. But loads of little birds has now resulted in all the neighbourhood cats coming around and <laughs> trying to chase and kill said birds. So I now have a view outside of my back window of the circle of life happening right in front of me. Well, indeed, now, because we do, as you say, back onto a similar fields a little bit further up, and uh, we don't have the issue with cats. But I've got a bird table that's right outside my kitchen. Uh, and the problem I've got is not cats, but rats. So because oh. of the bird seed that comes around, every so often yeah. I get rats coming to my uh, table and they sit there staring at me through the window <laughs> going, what are you going to do about it, pal? <laughs> Enough of this uh, philosophy. Let's get down to a man that doesn't just, like, mess around. Let's get down to talking about Tom Morris. Hi, folks. Yeah. Um <laughs> Uh, director and uh, Chartered Financial Planner over at Ovation, uh, based in Bristol, but happy to speak to anybody in the UK. Uh, yeah, shameless plug, as we're the ones who've been supporting it, or 95 episodes. So, yeah. Well, indeed. And you should indeed plug yourself, because, um, as I believe the young people say these days, you the man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Please never do that again, David, if that's okay. <laughs> but For real. <laughs> <Good try. laughs> oh, actually, I, I am a client of Tom's. I have to declare an interest here. And he is a very, very good independent financial advisor. Oh, and Chris you, knows his stuff as well. So all, all in all, apart from me, these are people that know an awful lot about money. I'm just the stooge that sets them up to be able to dispense their wisdom. On that note, let's talk a little bit, Chris, before we move on to the podcast Uh as a whole, I think in the last one we did, you mentioned that you were writing another financial well-being book. And I wonder if you have any updates about where we're up to on that. Well, I've, we've chosen a cover. Tombo's seen the cover, haven't you, Tombo? I have indeed. Really nice. Very pleased with it. Um, very colourful. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be in the shops in April. Um, the I've just done an edit and I've got to move the ending to the beginning. <laughs> so that's, uh, as you'll know, David, having written many, many things over the, over the years, that's quite a big thing to do, actually. You don't just cut and paste something. You've got to weave it all through again. So a bit of work to do, but I love all of that stuff. It's the editing I like the best, actually. Yeah, I like a good edit as well. I, I've found it's something over the years that I've been writing. You, you get better at, I think. That, and it's the thing I say I do a bit of teaching as well. The thing I say to my students is that, Writing is about rewriting a lot of the time. And the thing that you really need to learn is how to take a step back and 
honestly appraise your own work. And that's not always easy. So no, I do sympathise no. with you there. Very excited about the book, Chris, I have to say. Love the first one. Can I just chuck in my favourite quote on, on, on what you've just said? Uh, Blaise Pascal, French philosopher from 18-something or other, who said, I'm sorry I wrote you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a shorter one. <laughs> and that, for Absolutely. me, sums up editing. I think I, I love that. Absolutely right. OK, let's move on. What's on today's podcast, Chris? Today, David, we are going to listen to a chat between me and Paul Lewis presenter of the BBC's flagship programme about personal finance called Moneybox. Well, now, I'm going to come at this now from a from a, a customer point of view. So I'm a long-time listener to Moneybox. Back, I mean, Paul has been doing it pretty much all my adult life. Mm. <laughs> I started listening to it back in the 1980s, uh, which is when I was sort of beginning to grow up a little bit and was rather than being this feckless youth that didn't really understand or care very much about money, which to some degree I still am. <laughs> However, <laughs> thank you, Tom. Uh, but then I really didn't have a clue. And it was uh, listening to Moneybox on a regular basis that started to get my head around, uh, you know, the potential and the complexity as well of, of looking after your money. So, so Paul, he's been a constant voice in my head uh, uh, as, as far as money matters go, even predates you two. So I'm really looking forward to this interview. Well, he, he also has a, a, a new book out. And I have to say, this is a very practical episode. We tend to be very philosophical and, and talk about the, the relationship between money and happiness, or that kind of happiness, that sort of stuff. Whereas Paul's book is, I have to say, absolutely brilliant on the real nuts and bolts of money. Anyway, we won't get ahead of ourselves. We're going to hear about that in my chat. Excellent. So before we go on to that, let's go to the first of our regular features. This is No Shizzle Sherlock. Uh, now, there is a tendency for wealthy people to be, well, perhaps a little patronising in their advice to us lesser mortals. And they sometimes forget the role that luck played in their success with the result that they can sometimes perhaps overestimate their own abilities. In the No Shizzle Sherlock section, therefore, we listen to the words of wisdom from a financial or investment guru and wonder whether this is indeed insightful and meaningful advice or whether it's perhaps just a load of old toot. So, Chris, what is today's No Shizzle Sherlock? Well, David, today we are going to hear from an amazing, extraordinary American lady called Melody Hobson. She's president and CEO of an asset management company called Aerial Investments. She was the chair of DreamWorks Animation, made Shrek, the Shrek films, amongst many others. She's currently chair of Starbucks, making her first black woman to be chair of an S&P 500 company. And she's married to George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars. Get a load of that lot. Well, that is seriously <laughs> impressive CV. Uh, I think we're going to have to tread very carefully if we're going to disagree with Melody. So what's her investment quote, Chris? So Melody's investment advice is this. The biggest risk of all is not taking one. That's it, is it? The biggest risk of all is not taking one. OK, I think... I could understand where she's coming from, but that does feel like something that only the CEO of an asset management company would say. However, my view, let's face it, is not the important one around here. We need our investment expert, Tomo, to tell us whether or not this is no shizzle Sherlock or whether it's something entirely different. What do you reckon, Tom? Well, I'm a bit nervous about disagreeing. So I just go, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um I just, I, it's, she's definitely on something, right? If there's an opportunity comes up and you're not brave enough to take that risk, um, you never know what you might have missed out on. So I, I, I get that. But 
used to say those opportunities and risks are always required. So a little bit horses for courses for me on that one. I think if you're not willing to take certain opportunities to, to better your situation, then yeah, there, there is a risk that not taking one is the biggest risk. Um, but then this idea that everybody needs to take risk, I'm not so on board with. Um, it's a little bit more nuanced for me, but I think that's the point she was making is that if there's an opportunity arises, you know, the risk is not taking the opportunity would be, I think, where she's going with that. So I if anybody it's... ever wanted the definition of the phrase sitting on the fence, <laughs> I, think, Thank you. I think that that I think summed it up better than anybody possibly could. Yeah. Have you got anything to add to that? Well, yeah, I just think um, you only tend to hear these sorts of quotes from people who have taken a risk and it's worked. You don't hear that, that, that the same sort of comments from people who've taken a risk and it's all gone horribly wrong and they've lost all their money because they don't tend to get interviewed. So it's kind of the sort of thing that only somebody in her position would say, you know. Um, but I, I agree with, with Tomo. It is a horse. I mean, I think sitting on the fence is probably fair enough on this one. Yeah. It is a horses for courses thing. Um, so I, I disagree with that ultimately that everybody should be like that. But it's worth bearing in mind. Is it this concept of survivorship bias? Ooh. Well, you know, when you go to a conference and you see this great, you know, I think you just alluded to this successful person that's there, um, but they're the one of a hundred that succeeded. Mm. But that's all you see. So, yeah, hmm, I hadn't thought. Of that. Yeah, no, it's I, interesting. I mean, I have been in my life not averse to taking a risk, less so with money, but yes, probably sometimes with money too. But generally speaking, I've always given an opportunity to do something that other people might go, "Oh, that's a bit risky." I've often plumped for the risk, and more often than not. Uh, it's it's paid dividends. Uh, sometimes I've fallen flat on my face and picked myself up and gone again. But yeah, generally speaking, I'm in favour of a little bit of risk. But obviously, not if you're gambling your house or your life. Yeah, but, but I, I just to, just to wrap this because this is probably the longest um, no shizzle that we've done. There's an element of your you as a person though, David, are quite comfortable with the concept of risk, and it doesn't make you unhappy or uncomfortable or, or anxious. Well, some people are really uncomfortable with the concept of risk and it can make them actually really unhappy doing it so again it's nuanced there's a balance to it and it's about knowing thyself which we talk about all the time on this podcast excellent let's leave it there because i think that sums the whole thing up really really well right okay paul lewis interview coming up but first we need to move on now to our most popular regular feature which David, is do, you say that every time do i have any evidence that this is the most popular feature. <laughs> well, obviously it is, because it features Tom Morris. How could it not be the most popular feature? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Tom Thank Morris you. is actually the star of this show. Yeah, I get true. sackfuls of mail. I get thousands of emails saying, can, do you know Tom Morris? Would you touch him for me, please? Would you, would you, would you, give, him, would you give him a hug uh, and tell him how much I love him and how much I respect him? I'm uh, sorry. I must all not signed, Tom you. Morris. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, I think it is the most popular thing because it's been running since ever, since the dawn of recorded time. So let's hear, before we hear from the master, uh, Chris, have you got anything? I do. I've got one from Nick Howell. Um, Nick is a uh, coach and uh, he also is a trainer who delivers the IFW, the Institute for Financial Wellbeing, their financial wellbeing certificate. And he, he I was going to say he, he mentored me with the coaching stuff and he is brilliant. Yeah. Hi, Nick. Um, Sorry. 
and and he has a good he has his own book out by the way called Great Coaching Questions, which you can find on Amazon. Howell H O W E L Nick Howell. Anyway, his tip. At university, we were going to a ball. We pretended it was somebody's birthday and we all bought them a present, which was wrapped. When we arrived, we put them under our tables. And the presents were boxes of wine. Saved a fortune on the bar bill. <laughs> Not a great idea. It's a bit sneaky, but it is a very good idea. <laughs> I, I've had quite a few actually uh, sent to me and unfortunately I can't use any of them because they're all different ways of being a president. That was the closest I could get away with. Right. Well, mine, I think I've got one as well, which is uh, I've, uh, I've got a holiday coming up, going to Tenerife for a week. Can't wait. A little bit of winter sun uh, recording this in February, listeners. And uh, my tip is, having looked at my energy bills, is to go on holiday for a week because it's cheaper to go abroad than it is to heat your house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you might, right. Definitely on something there. It's like <laughs> the, the, the adage is don't, don't bother going and having a care, care home sell your house and go cruise around the world. And I think the daily cost of cruising, because they have all onboard medical facilities mm. and care, you're all fed, watered. You could go live your live your last decade on a cruise ship, traveling Lots the world. Said for that. I've done cruises in the past, and indeed I have seen those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, some of, them, some of them don't make it back from the cruise. Well, maybe that's a good, yeah. way to, uh, good way to end things. I don't know. Right, Tomo, come on. What's yours? What's your nugget for this uh, podcast? Well, well, do you know what? I feel this one is quite um, quite suitable as we got Paul Lewis, and you're, you're here. He's very good at helping people to to um, save money. And uh, something that we've used, and some listeners might be familiar with it, is uh, a website called Vinted, uh, V I N T E D, and it is it's just a really good secondhand selling platform. It's amazing. And you can do it quite local or you can post things around the country. And we've had great success with it. We've a load of stuff in the house that we've got. My wife goes on Vinted, puts it up there, sells it for a couple of quid or whatever. Postage paid, sends it off, job done. And we've, we've cleared the house. But we've also bought quite a bit for the children and for ourselves on there. So, again, it's this whole idea of sustainability as well, which I like. Oh, so it's good. Vinted. Yeah, oh, it's re- good. really good. Is this specifically clothes or all sorts of things? Oh, all sorts of things. All sorts of things. So children's toys, um, shoot, well, we just had some shoes arrive, which I guess is clothes. But yeah, a myriad of things. It's a really good site um, that I think has grown in popularity. And crikey, you can get some decent bargains on there. And again, it's so one, one person's junk is another person's treasure, I guess, is the concept. Yeah, well, we're looking to clear our house out a little bit. So I'm going to look into that. There's another one as well, which we've used called Ziffit. Uh, and that is specifically for books. It claims also to be for DVDs and things, but whenever you put anything on there, they never seem to want to buy them. But Ziffit will buy uh, books from you. And sometimes you'd be surprised at the amount of money that they will give you for um, for a, a book that nobody wants anymore. Chris is pulling a very strange face. What's going on, Chris? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you next podcast. Oh, I'm going Ooh. to keep that. I'm going to keep that on my sleeve. But this could just have been a bit of a deal breaker for me. What you've just told me, Tomo, and I'm going to keep it up my sleeve for the next podcast to explain why. Oh, oh wow! Oh. Intrigued. So yeah. remember, once you've listened to this one, subscribe and tune in to episode 96 for this fantastic revelation upcoming from Chris Budd. Right. Let's move on then to uh, your interview with uh, Paul Lewis. Tell us a little bit about Paul and Chris. Well, you kind of said it all earlier on, really, David. He's been presenting Moneybox for decades. I think that's literally true. 
Um, and he's been a campaigner on personal finance issues during that time as well. Uh, he's got strong opinions on things, most of which I agree with. Some of them I don't. But that's all right. We're allowed to disagree on things, aren't we? Um, but he's also just written this book, which is a superb. It really is. I'm, I'm not just saying that because he's on our podcast. I messaged him privately and just said, honestly, this book is absolutely brilliant um, about everything you need to know to manage your money. On the, so it comes under our control of daily finances, one of the five pillars of financial well-being. Um, it is only one of five pillars, but it is a really important one. So enough of me. Let's have a listen to my chat with Paul Lewis. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm delighted to be on your podcast, Chris. <laughs> so look, I, I just wanted to ask one question to, to get us started. What's it like being interviewed after all these years of interviewing others? It's very strange. I've been interviewed <laughs> probably 20 times about this book over the last few weeks. And it is very strange. And you have to think, do I really want to give all that away? You know, but I just generally tell people whatever they ask and afterwards think, mm, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But there's there's not been any problems. You know, I've had lots in print and lots on air. And, uh, it, you know, some people want to ask about me, but mainly they ask about about the book and about personal finance and about coping with the cost of living crisis, which is, you know, the big concern of everybody at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but before I let you deflect us away, very skillfully done there, by the way. I, I, I like the way you did that. But just before we go, can you give me, as somebody that also interviews lots of people, can you give me and also our listeners one tip for when you're interviewing somebody? What's a really good way of getting somebody to open up and uh, and talk? Well, I think the first thing is listen. You do, I'm sure you do that, but you do hear interviews um, on on radio and television where the interviewer just seems to go down a list and almost whatever answer is given, they ask the next question. So it, it's got to sound like a conversation. And the more of a conversation it is, the more the other person is likely to um, give you proper answers. But of course, a lot of politicians and senior people in business are very practiced at not giving you answers. So you don't have to be afraid to interrupt. I know people complain about interruptions, but as long as you do it politely and reasonably at a sort of natural pause, I, I don't have a problem with interrupting people. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, my favourite you hear quite a lot is somebody who asks three questions in one sentence and then ends up with or and then waits for the other person <laughs> to answer something. So um, I, I have to say, and this is absolutely genuine, I think your book is absolutely brilliant. I particularly, Thank there's you. one aspect to your book which I think is amazing. It's so comprehensive and it's also so current. So presumably you now have an annual update required which is going to keep you in business forever <laughs> well uh, the publisher certainly hasn't agreed to that no i haven't even <laughs> mentioned it uh, i mean the problem we had to be honest is that it was actually written before the financial chaos of having four chancellors and three prime ministers and because they all the new prime minister Liz Truss and her chancellor wanted to do very different things we had to change a lot of things that i thought were pretty well set in stone and then within a week, well, a few weeks, we had to change them sort of back. Um, but we did go to press at the start of November. And, you know, things like the reduction in the threshold for the top rate of tax are not in the book because that happened after we'd, we'd gone to print. It is always a problem with something that's printed on bits of paper. Yeah, <laughs> but the audio, the audio book, I did do a bit of updating when I read that. You can actually, I'd actually read the whole thing. So. <laughs> Well, I, it's 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 a strength of the thing that it is so current and so detailed. I think it's absolutely superb. I really do. Um, Thank you. But having been, well, I don't know about a lifetime, but certainly a very long career in, in money, what prompted you to write this now? 
Well, that's very hard to say. Uh, I, I was approached to write it. And my experience of books in the past is that, you know, you write them, it's a lot of work and you don't get much back. But Penguin Random House, that who now own BBC Books, were very, very keen on me doing it. And they thought it would be successful. I have no idea if it's been successful or not at the moment. Um, and they were very encouraging. And I think anybody who writes a book, except maybe some novelists who seem to turn out one every year, um, go, you go through a kind of dark period when you think, oh, will I ever get this finished? You know, I'm only halfway through. And so I I did get through those. And my editor at, at Penguin was brilliant, I have to say, in encouraging me to get through them. And um, it was it was published later than we hoped. But strangely, because I began it before the cost of living crisis, but it was published almost just in time to help people with the, the sort of effects of the cost of living crisis on every household, really. The current problems. Um, I would just say one last thing about the book, being a writer myself, that you read a lot of the people talking about having a voice and you have a great voice in this book because it's very chatty, um, personable, not technical. You don't get bogged down anywhere in this. I think that's a real strength to it, I'd say. Thank you. Can I just say one more thing about, about mm. it being current? Although, obviously, things like tax rates and even the odd law may change over and benefit rates over the next year, the principles are there. And that's what I wanted to get over. It's the principles. It's how the financial system works and how you can make sure you understand that. And I won't say get the better of it, but make sure it doesn't get the better of you. And those principles have been around as long as I've been writing about personal finance, which is decades yeah, yeah absolutely and, and those principles definitely do come across so let's get into some of them so um one of the fun five pillars of our financial well-being is control of daily finances so what tips do you have you mentioned a cost of living crisis what tips could you offer for people who aren't feeling in control right now i suppose the first one is you know open the envelopes if you get mm. envelopes through the post and you're afraid of what's in them because it's from your credit card company or the energy mm. supplier or even hm revenue and customs open it because it's only by opening it and looking at your situation that you'll know what's going on and the next step of course after opening it is to write it down and budget because there's a whole group of people in the middle, often called the squeezed middle now, who are suffering from the cost of living crisis. And many of them thought, you know, well, you know, life gets a bit difficult sometimes, it's never that bad. And they haven't really thought about the need to budget. But the need to budget and make sure that your spending does not exceed your income as far as you can every month has never been more important for everybody except the top few percent who are probably immune from these pressures. So, take control by looking at your income your expenditure and trying to boost your income and cut your expenditure and that you know there are tips for that that i can give at some point yeah i, I think um engage with your money would be a, a way uh, yes perhaps, absolutely. perhaps to put it um and that of course applies to anybody and everybody not just whether you're struggling but even if you're doing well mm -hmm. um so that's great advice thank you any others or we got you got you verbose and on the subject no, I think I think controlling your budget and controlling expenditure and income and thinking about all the things I mean, to do with expenditure, for example, think about all the things that you can perhaps get rid of. Now, if, if you go through your bank statement, your credit card statement and, you know, please don't yawn out there. It's not quite as dull as it seems because you will find surprises. You will look through it and you'll think, what's that £5.99 a month for? What's that £29 that I pay? 
last year and this year and ask what they are. And very often there'll be recurring payments that you have made. You know, when you've downloaded an app, you download a weather app or something, oh, that looks quite jolly. And then you don't really use it because it's not that friendly. Or you download a game and you play it a couple of times, you get bored. What you don't realize is that that free three month or one month's trial comes to an end. And when it comes to an end, that expenditure will be taken out of your account every single month. And you might not have noticed it in the past, but if you add up a few six, seven, eight pound monthly payments, that comes to a, an important amount of money now. You can stop them just by telling your bank or your credit card company. They have to stop them. You can tell the firm later, but you have to tell your bank first because that will stop them just dead like that so that's an important little money saving tip and i've get, i've said it many times and in almost every case people listening say yeah you know I, i've tried what you said and it did work i did have this i didn't know what it was and i've stopped it also streaming services do we need all those five six or seven tv streaming services we don't really look at the ones you really use and get rid of the rest you won't really miss them that much it's great advice and i particularly like the idea of uh, just just cancel it I, I, several times um i've gone through my bank and of course sometimes they put the name on your bank statement it's not the name of the service you're using so you don't actually know what it's for yeah. so i've just cancelled it and then you get yeah. a letter pretty quickly <laughs> then you find out what it was for don't you yes and sometimes they'll say you're obliged to pay this you never really are and you know the, the chances are that they won't pursue it anyway and just tell them that you signed up under a misapprehension because it wasn't clear and just leave it at that at least then you'll have a way to contact them because one of the things they do is they make it very hard to find how to cancel it with them oh you've got to write us a letter or you've got to send us oh you've got to telephone us you know and then you're kept on hold you don't need to do any of that just tell your bank or credit card legally they have to stop it brilliant thank you that's that's great advice um in money box that you present um what have been some of the most common or repeated questions that you've had over the years about personal finance and money well nowadays of course it is the cost of living crisis and particularly energy bills um energy bills and that the government help with those, which isn't always as simple and straightforward as the government says it wants it to be, is the biggest, the biggest group of emails we get at the moment. Um, and the cost of living crisis, you know, it, it's the worst I've ever known. And I think it is really affecting more and more and more people. Um, we've had other complaints recently about, and you may have come across this, Chris, actually, people trying to get their money out of a pension or an investment. And the delays just get longer and longer and longer. And, you know, one firm we were dealing with, it had a standard, a standard of 35 working days, that's seven weeks to answer a letter. I mean, that really is completely unacceptable. So I think the standards within the financial services industry, we also get complaints about, and also about how to complain. How do I do this? How do I sort this out? How do I get my money back for that airline ticket or that train ticket when the trains were cancelled um, because of a strike? Or how do I get my money back for that concert that I couldn't get to because of whatever reason or it was it was it? self-cancelled so it is complaining and getting your money back that people do have they don't know where to begin mm. and it's actually once you know where to begin it can be quite straightforward and again um organizations do make it difficult for you to find out how to begin don't they yeah absolutely um, they, they they put what i call this field of treacle in front of you and you have to wade through it and try and find it um and you know my advice is go straight to the boss there's a brilliant website called ceo 
email.com, which lists the personal emails and sometimes telephone numbers of every uh, chief executive managing director of firms in the UK. Now, I say every, obviously there are there is occasionally a gap, but it's very rare. And then once you've got the email, that gets your complaint onto a fast track. Um, and you certainly know it will be dealt with. And if it doesn't work, even then, then I have a technique, which I explained in the book, I call my nuclear option, um, for making sure they do pay up. You know, you, you threaten them with court action, show them you're in the process of taking it, and that money comes through. Just the other day, a man uh, I was in communication with over Twitter through direct messages, he hadn't been able to get his train ticket back. He couldn't use it because there was a strike. No one was interested in refunding him. He tried my method. He got it in his bank account within less than a week. So that kind of persistence at the highest level does work when you're owed money. That's a great tip. I, I've got one little beef. Um, you, you, you persuaded me to get out of my bonnet, actually, which is um, child <laughs> trust funds. Uh, ah, because yes. my son has a child trust fund and uh, we just can't get the money out of HSBC because they require money laundering proof, uh, you know, identity verification, which is different from every other type of identity verification. It's almost impossible to do. And three years later, we still haven't got his money out. Oh, well, that is appalling. It should happen much more quickly than that. At least you know where it is. Some people yeah, have right. even forgotten about it. And again, there is a website you can go to to find it. But I haven't really heard of delays, except for people who um, have mental health problems and, and can't look after their own money. There have been real problems with that. But I haven't heard of ID problems, though banks are very, very particular about ID now. We do get complaints about people saying, Barclays have just closed my bank account or HSBC have just shut down my bank account and they won't tell me why. And it is the, probably the one problem where there isn't really an easy or a good solution. Um, but I, you know, I'm interested in what you said about the ID. I mean, let, let me know later, Chris, more details and I'll <laughs> see if I can make a suggestion. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to prompt a campaigning journalist, <laughs> I promise. Um, but um, yeah, so, so, so uh, you've just got me thinking about my mum as well, who's just been told that Tesco's are going to close her bank account. She doesn't know why. It's exactly what you've just been saying. Yeah. Um, she's definitely a vulnerable person. Well, let's let's move on to positive things. Um, are there any themes that you've seen over the years at Moneybox which would suggest connections between how people use their money and their wealth and how happy they are? <laughs> um, the funny thing is, of course, people generally email Moneybox or email me or tweet me um, because they're unhappy. Um, we don't get many from people saying, oh, do you know, I'm really happy. I invested some money. I had a great financial advisor. It's doubled in size in a few years, and now I'm going to take it out and have a great retirement. We get almost none of those, I'm sorry <laughs> to say. Um, but I, I think money, money doesn't make you happy. I think that is true. But not having money can or not having enough money can make you very very miserable um and i think it, money doesn't buy happiness in that sense but i think there is an income there was some research done on this not that long ago which was suggesting that there is an income um for a, an individual or a couple where they were quite content you know and it, it's quite a high income i have to say um and of course the pensions and lifetime savings association publishes figures every year about having an easy retirement or a moderate retirement or a, a very basic retirement and you still need quite a lot even for the very basic retirement I'm afraid um, so if you don't have enough and I sometimes say this to people actually what is wealth wealth is actually having enough money to pay for your needs and 
some of your wants, you know, so your needs are covered and you've got some spare money to enjoy yourself, do what you like doing. That's what real wealth is. And that's where happiness comes from, I think. But certainly whether you've got half a million or 10 million, I don't think that makes you any happier. Um, But if you have 500 pounds or five pounds in your savings and an income well below uh, what you need to pay the gross for the groceries and your energy bills and your rent or your mortgage, then that is unhappiness. And I think there is that big difference between having enough and not having enough. I think the um, as income and wealth goes up, the amount of extra happiness gets exponentially smaller with each extra pay rise. I don't, uh, yes, that's right. That's right. The the, um, the research, uh, there's been several, but the one I'm thinking of particularly that you referred to is Purdue University in America, um, who said that, who found that uh, an income of $95,000, anything above that will not make you any more happy. Now that, as you say, is quite a high income. But when people are chasing limitless riches, actually, it's quite a low bar, isn't it? Quite a low level, really. It it is quite low. But, you know, $95,000 or £80,000, that's a lot of money. That's far more than, well, the median is about 33000 per pay, isn't it, in the UK, the the middle of it. Um, But if there's two of you, if you've got three or four children, if it's high enough to stop you getting child benefit um, and you've got a big mortgage or big rent, then even that sort of money will actually, in the present climate, disappear fairly quickly. So it it seems a lot to probably 90% of the population, 75% or 80% of the population, but it it may not be enough for your own family circumstances, especially if you've borrowed up to the hilt to buy a nice home, and suddenly the fuel bill has doubled, maybe trebled, um, since a couple of winters ago. So I think even even sums like that that seem extraordinarily high um, may not be enough to give you peace of mind and contentment if you've got those commitments. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Um, the uh, We have five pillars of financial well-being, and your book doesn't use that model, but you do cover all of those five pillars, so I can't recommend Good. people enough. Um, for example, coping with financial shocks, so you know, protection, how much life insurance, we all need that kind of stuff, and it, it, it's so granular, I absolutely love it. But I'm going to just change tack slightly here, and just ask you, um, I would suggest that you are a great supporter of good financial planning. Um, and I know you make some controversial suggestions in the book, <laughs> uh, let people find them for themselves, I don't disagree with much of what you say, um, so I think just saying that you support good financial planning would be a way of summarising that. Can I ask, um, and I did for our listeners flag this up that I was going to ask you this, do you use a financial advisor yourself? I have a financial advisor. Um, I've had one for some years. Um, if he's watching this, he'll be saying to himself, yes, but he always ignores my advice. <laughs> um, he is a very, very good financial advisor, and I recommend him to other people because I am so confident in, in his advice. He is, of course, an independent financial advisor. Yep. He has, of course, got um, uh, chartered or certified status, which is what I always say. And he even fulfills my third criterion, which is generally, if possible, pay your advisor in cash for what they do i mean in money rather than as a percentage of your wealth so he fulfills my criteria of course and he is very very good and he understands the world of finance um really certainly better than me for for many many things like that's what i wanted to ask um well because you know surely nobody can understand the world of finance better than you so what, what does um what does your third party advisor give you that you can't get yourself 
he gives me a very broad understanding of the kind of things he deals with. I don't deal with investment. I mean, I say this in the book. I'm not an investment specialist. I'm not regulated, of course, to be an investment specialist or to give people individual investment advice. I can give them information about all the traps to look out for. And I do say in the long run, investing is is the best way, hitching your money to the stock market in one way or another is the best way to make money in the long term. Um, People disagree with me about how long long term is. I think it's about 20 years. You may, you may think it's less than that. Um, but but he, he deals with the nitty gritty. He deals with annuities. He deals with drawdown if you're heading for retirement. And inevitably, my conversations with him are more along those lines than anything else because of my age. Um, he certainly understands contributing to a pension and how you deal with the tax relief on that um, and he can find you the kind of place to put your money that you want and because of his broad experience and his broad knowledge um, much more detailed than I ever could so I get a lot of useful and practical information and help from him um, and when I say I ignore his advice his direct advice somehow but he always he always helps me with what I plan to do always he, he's very very good you're in a better position at the end of it than you were before. That's yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so, uh, and your three criteria, that's why, I'm, that's why I mean good financial planners, because I don't particularly disagree with those three criteria. I'm a bit um, agnostic about the percentage bit, um, but I, but, but I take, I, I, I also see the other argument as well. Um, so look, just as we're wrapping up then, let's just see if we can get a couple of nuggets out of the book from you. So what would be um, your kind of favourite tips or maybe something that you discovered right in the book you didn't know before? Have you got any of those suggestions that we can whet people's appetite to go out and buy it? Well, childcare was one. I mean, I knew vaguely how childcare worked, but I had to do probably more research on childcare than anything else in the book. I mean, first of all, it's different in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, which, of course, I had to cover. But even if you take England, where I live, and I imagine where most, well, most of the UK population lives in England, then there are hideous and overlapping rules about childcare and how you can get free or cheaper childcare. There's one, um, I suppose this is my tip, if you've got children and you're not claiming tax-free childcare, which basically is £25 off every £100 you spend uh, on your childcare from the Treasury up to a maximum £2,000 a year, then look into it. And the Treasury... Well, the government, I should say, really has a very good website. There's one called, I think, Childcare Calculator, and there's one called Childcare Choices. And that actually covers the whole of the UK, strangely, even though the rules are very different. And I would recommend anybody with children who is working, who wants childcare, should look at those websites. And I believe almost everyone will, will know better what's good for them. And there's a very complicated interaction for people who do get some benefits as to whether they should claim the childcare through their benefit or claim it separately and it is impossible for the human brain to work out that so <laughs> no it really is and that's why this they do a better off calculator there of childcare choices which is very good so i found out a lot about childcare and the other thing still with children actually another thing that i found out is that children learn how to manage their money by watching their parents when they're about seven or eight years old and that that surprised me how young it was. That's research from Cambridge. Um, and I think if you have good habits, when your children are that age, they will 
acquire them almost by a process of osmosis. And I think the important thing is tell your children about money, teach them about money specifically, let them know that it's finite and, you know, use notes and coins and all those kind of things that I mentioned in the book to, to bring the next generation up able to cope perhaps better than their parents could. So that's an important, an important tip. And I suppose the other one is, these are the sort of difficult things people have to deal with. Mortgages. If you're trying to get a mortgage, you're thinking of getting a mortgage, be really, really good for a year. You know, don't go out a lot yes. because the, people don't realize every time you spend money with your card, whether it's a debit or a credit card, the, the bank knows where you're spending it. It knows if it's a restaurant or, God forbid, gambling or, you know, a, a, a supermarket um, or a jeweler's. It knows all those things. It knows if it's a pub. It knows if you go out to a pub five times a week and it will look at your affordability how much you've got left over the last six months or year, but it will also look at where you spend your money and how you manage it when it decides whether to give you a mortgage or not. And banks are very risk averse now, and they'll see these little red flags go up at certain things. So be very good. And of course, never, never miss or have a late payment on a bill, a credit card, or even your rent, because that can that can count against you nowadays, or a utility bill or your broadband. Never miss a bill. Um, so those things about being a real goody two-shoes for a year <laughs> before getting a mortgage. Again, I hadn't quite realised the extent of that when I came to do the research for the book. And I think the other thing, right at the other end, I would say to people is dying tidily. Um, and I don't mean making sure your arms are inside the coffin. I mean, <laughs> writing down all your financial affairs so that your loved ones know what they are. And don't forget, I think last year, 17,000 people in their 40s died. It comes when we don't expect it. So get this in place and update it regularly so that when you do die, your relatives or your heirs, your loved or your partner knows where your stuff is and write down a password for it all on a piece of paper and keep it somewhere they know. Um, I had those young woman talked to me a few years ago about her father who'd always said oh you'll be all right when i die love i've got a swiss bank account with some money in it um he died unexpectedly he never wrote it down and she came to me saying how can i get this money and the swiss bank admitted they knew who she was they knew he had the money but with and that she was his daughter and heir but without the password the 14 digits, I think, for a Swiss bank account, they would not let her have it. Things may be slightly different now, I don't know, but that was her experience. She doesn't know how much was in there, how much she could have had, That's a but there was story, something. So you've got to write things down and make sure your heirs can find them, you know, and expose those little secrets. Patrick got a secret savings account that even your partner doesn't know about. Put it down because no one will find out till you're dead and you won't care then. So be <laughs> honest about it. One of the, uh, another one of the five pillars is clarity and security for those that we leave behind. So that fits right into that one. Although I can see the headlines as this podcast comes out. Paul Lewis knows how many digits in a Swiss bank account. <laughs> no, well, I'm not, I, I said I'm not sure. I, I researched it for the book, but I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I think, no one's going to believe that. <laughs> or, of course, your Bitcoin um, access number, which many people have fallen foul of having Bitcoin stored on their own hard drive and then they forget the number. That's perhaps more likely now. Maybe that's 14. Anyway, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it, uh, it's I don't have either, I have to say.
No. <laughs> well, I honestly think that the book isn't just, it's a great um, book to read. It's entertaining, but it, and it also will give you a good pop. But then you need to keep it on your shelf as a reference guide to go in and out when you need it. That's the real advantage of this book, I think. So well done and congratulations on it. I think it's an absolutely brilliant uh, read. And thank you for joining thank us. You. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Chris. My pleasure. Well, that was really lovely, Chris. You're a good interviewer. Can I just say that? I've, oh, I've said it before and because I've been blowing smoke up Mr. Morris's posterior and I'm now going to do it to you <laughs> as well. But you're a very good interviewer. And that was uh, a, a very familiar voice is the voice of Paul Lewis it was earlier. And it's really interesting to hear him talking from a slightly different perspective in terms of being the one with the answers as opposed to the questions, as you discussed in the interview Uh there were several things struck me about that. I loved particularly his thing about open the envelopes, you know, uh, and, and I was certainly as a younger man guilty of getting those envelopes and going, oh, it's a tax bill. Oh, it's a credit card bill. I'll look at that another time. Uh, and uh, and I learned very quickly that that was not a very good way to go. So that's very simple, but 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 very basic advice. Open your envelopes, go through your bank statement as well. Uh, to, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, just finding all of those things that you've forgotten. I did it recently. I, my, my lovely little dog, uh, Ruby, sadly had to have her put down about six months ago. And I was checking through my bank statement last month and discovered that I was still, I thought I'd cancelled it. I was still paying £13 a month to, to the vet for a sort of care package for her uh, that I thought they'd cancelled and I thought I'd cancelled. But, but we hadn't, and they were great, and when I pointed it out, they refunded me. But it's very easy for those things to slip through. Um, and I, it also occurred something, I, I've come up with a quote, actually, I am going to claim this one. Uh, he talks about, um, be careful of those free trials where you sign up to something mm -hmm. and then discover a bit further down the line that you, you've ended up paying for it. Well, I've decided there is no such thing as a free trial. <laughs> to, paraphrase, to, to paraphrase that statement, because very, very soon they're going to catch up with you and make you pay if you don't keep on top of it. Um, and I just finally, from my perspective, sorry, but going on a bit here, but I really enjoyed the interview. Um, I really liked his notion of um, if you try and get your money back from some of these people, it can be like wading through a field of treacle, which I thought was a brilliant analogy. And finally, the notion of dying tidily. Uh, my dad used to say to me and my brothers, don't you worry, everything's all sorted out. You know? And when he died and we had to sit down with his solicitor to go through his will, well, like hell it was. <laughs> he thought it was sorted out, but there were a lot of loose ends that he'd left untied. Unfortunately, me and my brothers get on very well, so it wasn't an issue, but there was a lot more sorting out than I think he imagined that there was. So dying tidily, I was very much taken with that. That's my sixpenneth. Just going back to one of your points about um, uh, cancelling regular things you don't use anymore. He's, what I like about Paul is he's, he's very direct. You know, he doesn't mess about. And so he, we'll just cancel it. They'll, they'll write to you. <laughs> don't, don't bother letting them know or, or anything. He just, he just get in there, get in your bank statement, just cancel them all and, and it'll soon work itself out. And I, I agree with that. I think it's great advice. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I've actually, I'm a, I'm a little way through the book. I've not read it all. But it's 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 beautiful. The pattern's brilliant, actually. It's literally cradle to grave. It goes through the pattern of, from the moment you're born. So the first part of the book is very much focused on parents and their children and how to set things up, and then, and then as they go through to adult life. And some of the stuff is I'm finding really helpful, and and you know would be a real good good help to to clients who've got young young children for sure, and 
I'm sure there's more more nuggets in there. But what I really like, the stuff that he does, we talk about the five pillars. I don't think it's just control of daily finances that he's really helpful with. Financial shocks. You know, he talks about this concept of um, of protecting your family and all that sort of thing. But also this clarity and security for those we leave behind that you've just alluded to, David. So, look, I, I'm, I'm going through it now. I'd certainly recommend um, the listeners, uh, if, they, if they find it, give it, give it a read. I think there is some really good, practical, nitty gritty stuff in there. Um, and one thing I did realise reading it is I'm moving to Scotland. <laughs> and if those who read the book will realise, um, yeah. They, they got some, they, yeah. There, there are some, some, some more positive, uh, positive attributes to living in Scotland for sure. The ultimate tight ass Tomo tip. Move yeah, to move to Scotland. Move to Scotland. <laughs> You'll know when you read the book what I mean. Uh, but obviously, that's uh, and 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 Paul does make make it like like that in a friendly way. Yeah, well, I've heard a lot of these interviews over the years that you've been doing them, Chris, and this is certainly one of the occasions where I thought I must read that book. So uh, I look forward to borrowing a copy off one of you two. <laughs> That's my tight ass Tomo tip. <laughs> oh, I, lo- I love hearing that. Oh, I've read your book. It's really good. I've given it to four people. Oh, oh really? <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, listen, I hope you've enjoyed today. We've enjoyed our chat and I hope you'll join us again next time with another one of our financial well-being podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk you can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. <laughs> <laughs>